The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Also, to really take a moment to develop a habit of reflection so that you're reflective about the true impact of what it means for you to be a clinician educator. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features Dr. Kimberly Manning, who's a professor of medicine, as well as the associate vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Emory University School of Medicine and Department of Medicine. Dr. Manning wrote an article called The Death of a Clinician Educator, which appeared in the Annals August 19, 2008. We have a wide-ranging discussion of the importance of clinician educators and uh, the care and feeding of those clinician educators. We hope you enjoy this episode. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. When I was uh, doing some research for a talk I gave on the importance of clinician educators, I came across this wonderful piece you wrote in 08. It's titled Death of a Clinician Educator, and it's not about a real death, but rather the loss of a clinician educator who was very good. And maybe you could tell us that story because it's really poignant. I'm so thrilled uh, that the annals accepted that piece because it was really therapeutic to write. It was about a colleague who had joined faculty with me back in 2001 uh, at Grady at Emory when we first started. We went through orientation together and, you know, really kind of cut our teeth on the Grady wards as new attendings, uh, planning our first talks, scared about our first journal clubs that we had to deliver. And uh, over time, I just noticed that the grind, you know, it starts to weigh on everybody. And so one of the things he would say to me is, gosh, you know, I, this paper that I worked so hard on, it's been rejected by two places, or I don't know how anybody ever becomes an associate professor or a full professor. And, you know, over time, um, this kind of got to be greater and greater. And I was feeling a lot of the things he was feeling too. And then one day on his, our fifth year on faculty, he came and announced that he was leaving to go not across the country, not to a whole different institution, not to a fellowship, but instead to a, a local hospital system right in town to work in private practice. And, you know, of course, we know that we need physicians working in all areas, right? But it was such a loss because this individual, he would just seem like somebody who was born to be teaching medical students and residents. I mean, an exemplar of professionalism, brilliant. I mean, just so great on his feet and so great at the bedside. And I knew he would still take excellent care of patients, but there was just something in me that was so sad that this person would no longer be every day on the wards with our residents and medical students teaching them. So what you've done in telling the story is talking about why clinician educators are so important. Mm -hmm. When we think about medical school and residency, 
the people who really influenced us were clinician educators. They're, they're rarely the researchers, rarely the outstanding clinician who mostly just sees patients, but it's the people who come to the bedside with us, who make rounds with us, work with us in the clinic, and are role models for how to do it and how to treat people, et cetera. And thinking about this, I categorize three types of role models. The clinician educators that taught us as students and residents, Mm -hmm. the external role models, Mm -hmm. and special colleagues who give us energy all the time. Could you talk about those types of role models and how they've been important to you? Yeah. And I will, again, also say that some people are, you know, triple threats. They figure out how to be clinician educators, researchers, and clinicians and everything at once. So, of course, I always have to give that disclaimer in case somebody thinks we threw some shade. <laughs> but I'll say that, you know, I'll, I'll start by thinking about one of my earliest role models in medicine uh, as a resident. And that is an internist. Actually, he's an ID physician by training, um, Dr. Rick Blinkhorn who's the chair of medicine at Case Western Metro Health up in Cleveland. He interviewed me when I was a medical student and I just had never felt more seen than I did in that moment. He was so excited about teaching. He had read my application meticulously. And even, you know, we stood up in the interview and he said, let's go for a walk. He showed me the TB clinic, talked all about what it was like to take care of patients there and teach there. I knew then the way I felt, I, Not only did I want to come work with him, I want other students and learners to feel the way I felt. And I had the chance to then work with him more as a resident and as a chief resident, um, where he would give me tons of feedback constantly about my teaching, which really proved to be quite pivotal. Also, I would say some of those special colleagues, there are special colleagues who are my near peers, one being Stacey Higgins, who um, was our uh, primary care residency program director quite amazing and a good friend, but also some, some junior people. Jennifer Spicer, who is one of our very junior folks here at Grady at Emory, is just one of the most enthusiastic, innovative, fired up teachers that I know. And just being in her presence and watching her teach, just feeling her energy, it, 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 is, it just like gives me a shot in the arm and makes me want to do better and be better and be more innovative and try harder and think more about not just, you know, what I want to teach, but what I want people to learn and how they'll learn it. Of course, we can name lots and lots of people, but then, and thanks to social media, some of the people that inspire me are people that I don't even spend time with um, in three dimensions, you know. What about you? I want to hear about yours. When I was in medical school, there were I did medical school and residency at the same place. Okay. So there are, in the talk I gave, there were three people. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was a pulmonologist uh, named Orrin Murin, who won the Golden Apple Award every year and infused me with a love of acid base. And he was just always enthusiastic. And then there's a gastroenterologist named Alvin Sfass, who one day on rounds, we didn't have much to talk about. It was a quiet day. And he went through the entire physiology of bilirubin and sort Mm. of taught us about all the reasons why you'd have hyperbilirubinemia. And I don't remember a thing he said other than he learned the physiology and he used the physiology to teach. So that was a real role model. And Mm. then there's a guy named Reno Vlaschik, who was actually a well-known researcher, but he was the chief of gastroenterology at at our VA. 
we had a 40 bed GI ward with three interns. So you can add up how many patients we had. And he ran that ward like a drill sergeant. He was from Yugoslavia, scared the hell out of us almost every day, (laughs) but he taught us the importance of paying attention to details. Mm -hmm. And when he'd walk around with us, the concern he had for every single patient, and these were a lot of patients who were not uh, considered the uh, most acceptable in society, Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of veterans uh, in those days, a lot of alcohol uh, use disorder. And they'd come in with esophageal varices, and he wanted us to do everything possible to to do the best we could for them. So I learned so much from those people. And then I decided to be a clinician educator, and I I was not nearly as good as I thought I was. And then I met (laughs) Kelly Skiff, uh, and Kelly Skiff uh, taught me how to understand how to be a Mm -hmm. clinician educator. More recently, Jack Endy, I've had a Mm -hmm. lot of conversations with him. We've become very good friends, and he's taught me a lot. Uh, The clinical problem solvers have taught me Mm. a lot. You've taught me a lot. And then I have a special colleague, uh, Gustavo Hudebert, who I Mm -hmm. recruited to UAB in 1995. Mm -hmm. And we've had this important relationship where we could tell each other the truth Mm. without ever insulting the other one. We'd do morning report and the other one would be there and give us feedback Mm. uh, or give a talk. And after talk, we always gave each other feedback uh, and we both got better because of that. Mm. Uh, we, and it was just someone to sit around and talk about being a clinician educator and feel like we w- both want to be successful in the same way. We both have been, so it's worked. The thing is, I don't think my story is unique at all. The successful right. clinician educators all have this combination of people that role model for them and help them grow and become better. You know, one of the things that is apparent is that you feel like you've been in a growth pattern for a lot of years now. Yeah, yeah. How do do you maintain that growth pattern? How do you become better all the time? Well, you already touched upon probably the most critical piece, and that's feedback from people that care about you and who are willing to give you the time and the energy to really think about what that feedback is. If you're fortunate to have good social skills, sometimes good social skills can just lead you to a place where people like you and the feedback that you get is is really not very helpful. It's just rooted in, you know, how people feel about being in your presence. We actually wrote about this uh, sort of um, fighting this reputational inertia. Jennifer Spicer and I wrote about this, how, you know, you can get this reputation for being a nice person or air quotes good. And no one gives you feedback anymore or pushes you anymore. So finding those people who are not competing with you, but who care about you and who care enough about the patients that they want to see you be your best and reach your potential. I think that's a a really big thing. And I also think that one of the things that keeps us going is to try to find some role models or special colleagues too that are enthusiastic about what they're doing. I think that piece is one of the things that provides me a shot in the arm. You know, uh, I said to you before, Bob, that I, I just, I feel so excited by your energy and watching the ways that you've defined or redefined what it looks like to stay engaged in medical education, but also, you know, embrace new phases of your life. You may not remember this, but uh, we were at SGIM a few years back 
pre-pandemic and I was chatting with you. I believe it might've been the year that you got the Glazer Award. And I'm chatting with you and I'm congratulating you. And, and you, all you could talk to me about was how excited you were about your grandson's bar mitzvah that was coming up <laughs> and how excited you were and how proud you were of him. And I thought, now this is goals. This right here, you know, to be able to have the room and the space in your heart to be enthusiastic about this work, but still to be fully present for your family so much so that you let it be the front of your thoughts in front of people. That was a real powerful role modeling moment for me and one that you probably didn't even realize happened, but it told me, hey, you know, family is really important. I can do this and I can also, you know, um, be there for my family and excited about their milestones. So you and I are fortunate enough that uh, we have major presence on social media. We're fairly well-known clinician educators. Not all clinician educators are well-known. So this is a double question. What can Mm -hmm. we do to help junior clinician educators? And what can our organizations do, especially ACP, to try to uh, help the people with talent grow into their talent? Because I think you and I will agree that the role of the clinician educator is essential in medical schools because we need our students to have the right role models because of the hidden curriculum as well as the curriculum. And we need our residents to have those excellent role models. Well, I think it really distills down to, you know, two words and that that's show up and um, what it looks like to show up as a, as an organization is um, to, to show up by redefining what excellent looks like. I think traditionally many people thought, okay, this is what excellent looks like. Um, Someone very, very senior with white hair, who's male, who's white. This is the the gold standard. And I think this year alone, ACP did a great job with some of the plenary selections, um, high profile lectures, really shaking it up in terms of seniority, diversity in, in race, but also of content. I mean, this isn't just a thing of, okay, I'm going to choose a black woman to be one of the plenary speakers. The content piece, I think was really exciting to see the humanities brought into this that hey, we can talk about science, we can talk about um, professionalism, diversity, Um, we can talk about acid-based disturbances, we can talk about lots of things. But I I think our organization's putting um, front and center a redefinition of what it looks like to to be excellent. Other things I think is that there's this individual work that we have to do. And I think the individual work is how can you make sure that, that you're having impact? Now, traditionally, impact was always in the form of, I got a paper published, I got invited to give a workshop somewhere, this went on my CV. But I've created a personal sponsorship portfolio that tracks the things that I have done and the impact that I've had on other people. You know, when you go up for promotion, you do have to list all your mentees, but this is different. This is more, I made a phone call for this person and this happened. I wrote a letter for this person. So I have a list of all the letters that I've written, all the you know, recommendations, phone calls, even tweets that I've made about things. And then I I loop back to see what happened as a result. So on the days when I'm feeling the most tired or even, you know, when I'm feeling like I'm on the edge of burning out, I take a look at that and I say, wow, in addition to taking care of my patients at Grady Hospital, my underserved patients at Grady Hospital, 
Wow. Imagine if I multiplied that by all of these people, what does that mean? So that that's, that's in private. That's no award. I'm not standing on a dais. Nobody's giving me a gleaming crystal, you know, thing to hold in my hand. What I look at that and know is, Hey, this is real impact. And this directly translates to taking care of patients. So I do think that we have to find ways to affirm ourselves and then also surround ourselves with those people that are keeping us excited and who are giving us that real feedback. I think you've just defined servant leadership <laughs> because it's not about you. It's about the people who you can help. And those, right. those are the residents, the students, the junior faculty, and the patients. And mm-hmm. when you do that, that warm feeling that we have as clinician educators, and I get that warm feeling all the time mm-hmm. when I see people growing and mm-hmm. when I see patients being grateful that we ask, ask them, what kind of work did you used to do? And the right. stories we hear are just so beautiful. And then you see the light bulb go off in your learners is we're taking care of people. We're not taking care of patients. We're taking care of people who have diseases. Mm-hmm. I think the, the famous Osler quote, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what you were talking about. And I, I, I love that. What final advice do you have for people who are thinking about being clinician educators? I think my, my final advice is that you may not find someone who looks identical to you, who's doing exactly what you, what you want to do the way you want to do it. That, you know, medicine is dynamic and medical education is dynamic. And we welcome new ideas and innovations. So don't be afraid if, you know, you feel like you're coloring outside of the lines a little bit. You can have great impact in that way. But also to really take a moment to to develop a habit of reflection so that you're reflective about the true impact of what it means for you to be a clinician educator, to show up not just with a curriculum and a, you know, algorithm on a whiteboard, but, but really showing up with that enthusiasm about what it means to, to, to role model for people, to demonstrate for our patients what it looks like to be respected. And then uh, of course, surrounding yourselves uh, with people who will give you feedback and who will treat you with kindness and who will offer you a soft place to land. This is not always easy. I know for sure I've had my days where I've been like, oh man, you know, <laughs> this would just be so much easier if I just did, you know, this thing over here. But the reward is so great. I can think of nothing else more rewarding than what we get to do year after year after year after year. So um, I say it's the best job ever. Kimberly, thank you so much. I absolutely agree with everything you said. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this episode, Dr. Manning and I discussed the care and feeding of clinician educators and why they are susceptible to burnout. Clinician educators play a crucial role in the training of medical students, residents, and fellows. They need support to grow and continue making an important impact on these learners, both in the explicit and the implicit curricula of medical education. We hope that this discussion helps you consider how we might improve 
the status of clinician educators at medical schools throughout uh, this country and other countries. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.